Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I am Kelly Link, and I am the author of The Book of Love. Kelly Link's debut novel, The Book of Love, is a combination of realism and the supernatural, a favorite technique of hers that she's used through her numerous short stories and collections. This story centers on a group of teens who are brought back to life after a year of being dead. When they return, they're as clueless as we are, but with the help of some magical beings, they begin to figure out what happened to them and what happens next. I recently spoke with Kelly Link about a slew of subjects, from balance to the magic of music and so much more. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Kelly Link. So how much are we spoiling today? Maybe you can give us some cues through a description of the book. Sure. You know, I will say that I don't particularly care about spoilers when I'm watching TV or reading books. I'm uh, infamous among my novelist friends for admitting that I sometimes read the end of a novel before I'm even at the middle in my first reading pass. And I do that because sometimes having some information about what the writer is going to do makes the reading experience more pleasurable on that first read. But I also know that other readers don't feel the same way. So I will try and give you a general summary. And whatever you feel that I've told you about the novel, there's probably a lot more in there that we're not going to get to. This is a big book. It's 640 pages. It is about uh, a couple of kids who have been missing for a year. No one knows what has happened to them. And they suddenly reappear in the high school classroom where they took music. Uh, Their music teacher is there. Uh, They have versions of their bodies that may be slightly different from the bodies that they disappeared in. And their music instructor tells them that um, they have been dead. And in order to stay among the living, they are going to have to learn how to do some magic and figure out what happened to them. But he and some other people may have an agenda that sort of extends beyond that. It takes place in a small town called Loveson, Massachusetts, which I totally made up. There's some magic. There's some romance. I think of this book as my love letter to the romance genre and to the supernatural teen melodrama, two of my favorite kinds of entertainment. You know, we should probably talk a little bit about your writing style. I pulled this from uh, the MacArthur Foundation webpage because you were you were named a fellow by the MacArthur Foundation in 2018 for, quote unquote, pushing the boundaries of literary fiction and works that combine the surreal and fantastical with the concerns and emotional realisms of contemporary life. So talk to me about this approach and how it relates to the Book of Love. The Book of Love is told from multiple points of view, primarily the points of view of the adolescents who are caught up in this mystery. But there are other points of view as well, people who live in the small town, 
some of the uh, people from outside of Love Send who may be much more than they appear to be when we first meet them. And when I write a short story or a novel, this is my first novel, the thing that makes me most excited about getting to know the characters or figuring out what the story is going to be is that intersection of the supernatural and what makes a person tick, what they, the way they see the world, the kinds of things that they love or hate, the kind of relationships that they have with their family, with their community. And so psychological realism, a certain degree of psychological realism for me is the backdrop uh, for figuring out how the supernatural affects people and vice versa. That when something extraordinary and unlikely happens to something, you figure out some things about that person, which if their life was not interrupted by something large, they might not even understand about themselves. You mentioned the different points of view. And, you know, each chapter title begins with the book of, maybe it's the book of Susanna or the book of Laura or the book of Ethan, which makes me laugh. But you're not sharing these stories from a first person perspective. But we do get an idea of who each of these characters are. We get an idea through their dialogue and internal thoughts. And there were many characters. My producer tells me she counted 22 Talk to me about assuming each voice. Were some easier to tap into than others? That was part of the pleasure for me was getting to think about this world from all of these different points of view and to see other characters from the points of view of people who knew them in different capacities as friends or as siblings. And I had not actually done the count of the points of view, but the span of the book takes place uh, maybe over four days. It's four or five days. It's very fast. And so to think that, you know, to sort of compare the length of time versus the number of people who are telling the story is interesting to think about it. I wanted it to be a polyphonic book. I wanted a lot of points of views. I wanted it to have a kind of choral effect because so many of the main characters in the story have a deeply personal relationship with music and not to be in any way sacrilegious, but in the same way that we say, you have a personal relationship with a religious figure. These people all have personal relationships with music and think about music differently. And music for me was a way to uh, say some things I think about magic. You know, you mentioned music. Talk to me about John Cage. You know, he's referred to several times in the book, and the epigraph is one of his quotes. Embedded in the story are some lines from John Cage's writings. I really enjoy reading the writing of John Cage. I feel like I'm learning something not just about music but about an attitude towards experiencing the world. And one of the characters in the book, Mo, has a real relationship with the music of John Cage, that he feels about John Cage the way somebody else might feel about Harry Styles. Something in John Cage really speaks to him. And, you know, I've seen some performances of John Cage's work. I've heard the poet Mary Ruffel give a reading 
of one of John Cage's lectures. And those have had a profound effect on me as well, that it was like being in the audience as somebody makes a spell work, that there's something hypnotic about some of his lectures, that there's something transformative about them. Several years ago, it was right after I started working here at KMEW, and I've been here almost 10 years. I had a meeting with my boss, who's the director of content, and then two of our music producers. And we were talking about, you know, what efforts I needed to put in to market their shows. And every time they would mention, like, an artist, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I don't understand music. I'm not, I mean, I'm a book reader, <laughs> not a music person. And they would just kind of give me a hard time a little bit. And my, my boss, Lou, called, said something about John Cage, and I just kind of had to shake my head. And she's like, ooh, lowbrow. And then she's like, oh, maybe not lowbrow, middlebrow. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And I left immediately and went to a meeting where a friend of mine who is an artist, um, I was designing a website for him. And so my boss calls and she's like, "Um, Chris Heim really thinks I need to apologize to you for calling you lowbrow and middlebrow. And I said, okay, that's fine, whatever. So I hung up the phone and then I had to explain to Randy, oh, I just had this happen. I said, do you know John Cage? He goes, I went to grad school. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is just like not what I need to hear. 433? Yeah, I went to grad school. <laughs> so whenever I see anything about John Cage now, I'm like, oh, I should probably know something about this. <laughs> you know, I, I I have to admit, I did not start really thinking or reading about John. I knew who he was. I had, I had heard some of his music, but I didn't start thinking about him until I was in my 50s, which is maybe the time that I needed to start thinking about John Cage, maybe late 40s. Um, But, you know, there's something, he says some things that make me, he says some stuff that that really moves me about the fact that everything is, is music, that if you, if you are prepared to hear it as music, you know, traffic becomes music. There, it's not so much necessarily that there are patterns out in the natural world and in in the man-made world. There are some, but some of it's random. But you know, we're pattern-making animals, and so we can take what we hear and we translate it into music. And that's a very bad paraphrase, but there's something in it that I find really extraordinary and moving. So, talk to me about love as it relates to this book because you know there's the title uh the name of the town as you mentioned is is love's end the forthcoming opera the relationship between the characters what did you want to explore about love through this book years and years ago i got asked to contribute to an anthology of short stories uh, by the writer stephanie perkins and it was going to be a winter holiday anthology. And she said there were really only two rules for everybody writing a story that it had to be set in winter around a holiday and it had to have a happy ending. It was a love story. And I was really, really taken with those rules. You know, winter, putting something winter, fine. It's always interesting to pick a season and see how that changes a story. But to give something a happy ending. I'd never been asked that before. And I thought about the fact that um, 
at least in the romance genre, that we expect our stories to have happy endings. And I love romance novels. I love love stories generally. I like love stories that end in tragedy. I love stories out of the romance genre that are guaranteed to have a happy ending. And I wanted some of that feeling in this book. I don't think I would be great necessarily at writing a straightforward romance, but I could certainly in this novel celebrate some of the things that I love about the genre. And the title came last of all. I had the whole novel done before I had a title and I was not quite sure what I would call it. But I have a good friend, the writer Holly Black, whom I often work with. She had just titled a novel, Book of Night. And I said, do you mind if I riff off of that for my title? Because I think actually Book of Love sends the right signal to somebody who might pick it up in the bookstore. You get to do some work when you title a novel. You get to maybe point the reader in a direction or tell them something less obliquely than you're going to do in the book itself. And Book of Love has a couple of connections in terms of songs, um, but it also, I hope, tells the reader some of the business of the book. And it's not just romantic love stories. It's about the love between friends, about familial love. I really wanted to celebrate uh, the that that kind of capacity for generosity, for reaching out to somebody, all of the things that we think about when we think about love stories. As I was reading, I thought about the unique relationship between Susanna and Laura. And then I thought to myself, well, wait a second, is this really unique? Because they're sisters and they, they bicker all the time and they love each other. Susanna was indignant when she learned that through magic, Laura had made her do laundry. So how would you describe their relationship? Definitely a sibling relationship. I am not quite as close in age as as Susanna and Laura in the book are to my sister. My sister, who is just visiting, is two and a half years younger. But I think anybody who has a sibling, especially a sibling of the same gender, anybody who has that sort of slight gap where you're almost peers but not quite, knows what that friction feels like and how strong those feelings are that you can really toggle back and forth between feeling that you have an ally and a best friend and someone whose clothes you can borrow and then feeling like you have an enemy who is living maybe even in the same room as you are. You know, this book tackles some serious themes, but there was so much humor woven throughout. Is it difficult to balance the serious with the humor? When you write, how do you know when to apply more pressure of one over the other? I think for me that I know that I am finding the tonal quality or the kind of story that I want when the bleaker stuff is rubbing up against things that are also funny. That for me, that is part of how life operates, that you can be going through some really bleak, terrible things and yet stuff will still strike you as funny. You know, the, the humor is not just a release valve. I think humor lives next door to, to pain, to trauma, uh, to acknowledging things that are unpleasant but true. I think that those, those two feelings coexist. And much in the same way that I find 
the supernatural or the fantastic helpful if I want to write about the real world, that I find humor useful when I'm writing about trauma or very dark material and vice versa, that that I find it hard to only tap the the lighter vein, the the, the comedic vein without doing some work to, I guess, show what sits next to the funny stuff as well. I don't know about you, but in, in my own life, some of the funniest people that I know are also some of the people dealing with really terrible stuff. Seems like all of my questions are about balance because there were parts of the book that felt fantastical and there were parts that felt like you are you must be such a close reader of life. There was a point in the book when somebody sat at a piano and pressed the middle C key so lightly it made no sound at all. And I mean, that just that's that's an observed phenomena that happens, you know, sometimes in life. So how do you balance the two styles, the fantastical with real life in your writing? I think that the fantastic has to have the texture of real life to feel believable, that if the fantastic is not anchored in details that that feel true to lived experience, then it it's kind of a, a pretty picture, but it's not much else. Um, and this is a book about a couple of kids who have been dead for a while and they come back to life and there is the risk that they may end up dead again. And so it seemed important to me to dwell on, I guess, or to allow them to really uh, luxuriate in even the ordinary parts of real life that they had been denied you know, during this period of a year and that they are afraid that they may have to give up again. And so the textures of real life and the way the real world feels, the way that doing chores or having an argument with your sister over something really stupid, that there can be a kind of um, relief, a release valve in it. Um, But also as much as we hate things like doing the dishes, if you have just had a narrow escape from death, it feels pretty good to be doing those dishes. Talk to me about endings, because in the book you write, here's the thing about endings. Even after you finish a book, things go on happening, no matter whether or not you plan to write them down. Do you continue to think of characters after your stories and now this novel are finished? Do they keep talking to you? Do they keep kind of poking and trying to get your attention? It's going to sound strange, but not in the forward sense. I keep on thinking about things that I could have done differently in the version of the book that exists. You know, what if they had done something a little bit differently and not necessarily in the way that I could go back and revise. But I think that, you know, I worked on this book for eight years. My brain is trained to think through different versions of these characters, different versions of the things that they do. And so they do feel alive in that way, in the same way that I think when we think about ourselves, we think, well, what if I had said something slightly differently? Or what if I hadn't gone to that place? Um, You know, that you, we do sort of look back at at our lives or recent life or long ago life and think, well, what if things have been slightly different? But in terms of what happens after the book ends, no. And I think for me, it feels like I'm, 
releasing them into the wild with no tracker. You know, I haven't put a tracker on them or anything, but um, that it, to me, it is a way of feeling like they are still alive is relinquishing control over them that they may be outside the action of the book. Obviously they are, they are not real people. I made them up, but if I stop thinking about what might happen to them after the book, in some way they are in some liminal space. I don't know what happens to them. And that, that feels liberating to them as well as to me. Does the same hold true for your short stories? Because the book of love is your debut novel, but you've published numerous short stories and short story collections, including Get in Trouble, which was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer in fiction. But it seems like, I mean, I'm in a short story reading group. And, you know, depending on where, you know, whether we're getting something from a a collection of stories, an actual published collection, or if it was published in the New Yorker, or, or if it was in some other anthology, the stories that my group reads, sometimes we're not reading the same story. Do your yeah. stories ever change after they're published in one form or, or another? Only minutely. I will make small changes if it's, you know, moving from a magazine into a collection. Uh, but I have been a part of workshops for 35 years now that, that or longer that I have been attending workshops talking about um, a story published or unpublished with a group of friends in the way that you are. And it's uh, wonderful to me that you will get a group of really smart people, many of them writers themselves, if it's a workshop um, or all of them. And if you sit down to talk about what the story was about or what happened in the story, you know, two or three people may agree, but you're going to get this enormous divergence in terms of what was important in the story, what the ending meant, what kind of uh, characters, people's sense of what those, who those people were, that all of that is is so deeply personal, not to the writer, but to the person who, who read the story. And there's something fabulous about that, 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 the reader, each reader takes what's on the page and runs it through their own filter um, and comes away with a book that is not quite anybody else's book. That's that's fabulous. It seems like we often hear that writing a short story is, is much more difficult than writing a novel. How have the experiences of these two writing forms been for you? Was the Was the process of crafting a full-length novel much different than that of crafting a short story? There were similarities. I am not somebody who finds writing enormously pleasurable as I work, uh, whether it's a short story or a novel, that I'm always chasing that feeling when it feels like you know what you should be putting down on the page and you're able to do it. But most of the time when you write, it feels like hard work and it feels like you're not doing a great job. And so with a novel, you feel that way for a lot longer than you do with a short story. And I would say at the end, you know, this is very much the book that I wanted it to be. I sort of did the things that I wanted to do as well as I could. And that's always where I hope to end up with a short story. But, you know, I got to the end eight years later and thought, 
well, that was a lot of work, you know, and I, I feel sort of as, as happy as I do when I, when I write a short story. So maybe I'm a short story writer at heart in the sense that, you know, over the course of writing this novel, I also got to write an entire collection of short stories. And I wasn't always happy when I was writing those, but what I did really enjoy was I was sneaking off from the novel and getting to do something writing wise that I wasn't meant to be doing. And that was very joyful. And I, I, you know, I'm happy that I wrote a novel. I'm very pleased with it, which does not mean that every reader has to be, but, but I, I sort of know where I feel about the book. Um, but one of the best parts was, was writing all those short stories on the side. Here's my final question about balance. So because you are the co-owner of Small Beer Press, you are also the co-owner of Book Moon Books. How do you divide your time and achieve balance among these areas? Does does one area of your life have more pull than the others? That's a great question. And there are some large changes in the sense that uh, we have closed the press for a while not because of balance so much, but because my husband has had long COVID for two years uh, and fairly profound long COVID and bookstore and, and home life and um, small press that, that that was an overwhelming amount of work for two people. One of whom is on the couch 85% of the time. It's not really sustainable. And so now it's the bookstore and it's writing and I'm doing some teaching at Smith, uh, which is in our town. And I think that I like having more than one kind of career. I don't love to be writing every single day. I love having a bookstore. Um, I'm not there as much as I was during the first two and a half years that we owned it, in part because our life has got complicated but with the bookstore with writing those are both things where you have a pretty clear idea of what your what your tasks are um or you have deadlines and with writing the difference is that you are trying to pull something out of yourself which is a complex and unpredictable process i do have friends who are very very good at writing every single day they have managed to find a way to treat it almost like a nine to five job. And I can't quite seem to do that. And I, in fact, am a better writer in the sense I sit down to work if my time is not finite, if I have other things that are pressing on my attention. Uh, and running a bookstore is one of the most wonderful things that you can have sort of taking up some of your time. Uh, it's enormously rewarding. You're getting to hand sell books that you love. You're getting to talk to other people who love books. Uh, bookstores are just very comfortable environments to work in, or they should be. Uh, so that that kind of work is, is pretty delightful. Well, your book is The Book of Love. Kelly Link, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. That was Kelly Link, author of the novel, The Book of Love, which was published by Random House. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. 
Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.